Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hi, Chris. Hey, Hey, Kirk. And we are joined today by a very, very special guest. Our guest today did his undergraduate studies at Bemidji State College, majoring in math, physics, and education. He was a dock boy for six years on one of the most beautiful lakes in the world. I'm sure many of our listeners have no idea what a dock boy is. It's a Minnesota thing, and it's nothing like being a pool boy. He was a teacher, (laughs) a coach, a computer programmer before attending seminary at United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. He's pastored at six different appointments in in Minnesota, including nine or ten different churches. I don't know... Uh, in his first appointment, how many churches he served. If it was Verndale Central, Bertha Hewitt being separate ones, Wrightstown, I have no idea. Um, He once built a sailboat. He wore all sorts of hats when he served two churches 60 miles apart on the Canadian border of Minnesota. And these hats included boiler repairman, contractor when he built a three-car garage with a shop, roving pastor, I feel like that one requires a little bit of explanation. He was the pastor of a, I don't know, 1,500 square mile area, which required him to get into a boat and access some cabins accessible only by boat, and but also drive down these gravel roads, uh, one of which is the Echo Trail, uh, knocking on doors, seeing if there were any unmet pastoral needs. He's a reader. He's an avid outdoorsman uh, who uses the Northwoods all four seasons for cross-country skiing, road biking, hiking, and uh, just general relishing of God's creation. One new thing he's picked up is he's a basketball referee. He's And football? No, no, no football. No, 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 no. He's the father of two, the grandfather of six beautiful children, and he is my dad and thus our dad. Uh, Craig Haberman, welcome to the Haber Bros podcast. Here, here. Wow, thank you. Christopher, I'm speechless, I think, and being this is my first podcast, I'm nervous enough to begin with. Now with that sort of introduction, I think I'm about to dissolve into a puddle of sentimentality. So thank you. Thank hey, you. we do flattery well here. Let me well, just say that. You heard Kirk's introduction of Dave DeQuatro last week, uh, which was hard to top, and that's why <laughs> Kirk, Kirk was like, do you want to introduce Dad? <laughs> and there's no matching of Kirk's introduction of Dave DeQuat- Dr. Dave DeQuatro, but uh, I did my best. Well, you, I, I feel like you met and exceeded. Dad, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I myself am a PK. My father, retired United Methodist pastor in the Minnesota Annual Conference. He was an assistant pastor 
underneath Franz Hildebrandt, one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, two of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's dearest friends. So my father sat at the feet of uh, a luminary in the Christian tradition. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Franz Hildebrandt wrote a catechism together. Uh, someone has famously said that Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his friend, second major friend, the more well-known Eberhard Beitka, his biographer, that Bonhoeffer and Beitka made music together. I think Bonhoeffer on the piano and Beitka on the violin, but it was Beitka and Hildebrandt that did theology together. So my father, I am in the line of clergy. I his and, sister also was yes, and my my aunt Joyce was one of the first United Methodist women ordained Methodist at that time in the Minnesota Annual Conference. So I'm in the lineage of clergy. Kirk and Christopher are carrying on the lineage of theology, Christian faith and practice in ways that warm the cockles of this curmudgeon's heart. So <laughs> that's sort of where I came from. I remember my dad sitting me down one time, all of us, I guess, I'm one of four boys, and saying, don't feel like you need to be a pastor. And that was the last thing I was thinking. <laughs> Fast forward a bit to seminary, and a call to ministry came to me, or, I'm sorry, college, fall of my freshman year. And that would call would come and go over the next seven years before I went off to seminary. And as Christopher mentioned, I, my undergraduate was math and physics. Fast forward all the way now to just several months ago. I live now in Ely, Minnesota. I'm a pastor of a small United Methodist Church, theologian in residence. I was at a gathering with a number of people uh, from all walks of life that have a once a week gathering at a resort in, in uh, Ely for theological, or not for theological, but for cultural uh, interchange, intellectual interchange and fellowship. Ely has a lot of people retiring there with impressive intellectual and experiential pedigrees. This person, I think, may have, have, may have an Oxford pedigree. If not, it's certainly a, came, a Massachusetts pedigree. A scientist of some renown. She sat next to me and said, well, who are, uh, asked who I was. I said, the United Methodist pastor. I said, I once was a scientist. And she said, oh, well, that sounds like an interesting journey. And I gave a very flip answer to her, uh, not intentionally so, but because I'd never thought about it. Later on that day, I realized that not only was there the call to ministry, but in hindsight, science gives us an incredible view of the universe. You combine the discoveries of science with the explorations and tradition of faith, and you have a more splendid, splendid view. And so that's where I am now, looking back across 37 years of being a pastor, 64 and a half years on this planet, and I marvel at all of the connections and all of the ways that we see the glory of creation and the glory of the Christian tradition. So that's a little bit about me. And the next time you're on the podcast, uh, we'll have a segment where you can explain string theory to us. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk theology and culture in scripture today. Sound good? 
Sounds good. So I'm, I'm delighted to be here. And I, one of the, the only thing that's not working for me in my life right now, which that's an exaggeration, but the most important thing that's difficult for me right now is not being able to spend time with Kirk and Christopher, with the two of you, uh, your families. Uh, you are a great joy to me. Well, Dad, you, um, you're, you're walking in uh, good footsteps. Uh, you reminded me of Immanuel Kant, who once said, um, there are two things that he marvels at, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. So there Touché. you go. Touché. <laughs> yeah. Um, gentlemen, I, uh, this week I have just been noticing how much um, I've been missing sports. Dad, this is one thing that you passed down to us is a, um, a, a really deep uh, passion for Minnesota sports, uh, Minnesota Twins baseball, Vikings football, and then um, for complicated reasons, uh, hockey never really kind of took, um, but Minnesota Timberwolves basketball. And um, I have two boys uh, that, that uh, are avid baseball and soccer players, and spring would typically be, my life would be very busy um, coaching baseball and, and running kids back and forth from practices and games, and there's, there's just none of that. And that is one of the great delights to me of fatherhood. And Dad, you've definitely passed that down, um, mm -hmm. the delight that, that you had playing catch with us and coaching us and baseball and basketball. And, um, and my kids instead, that, that vacuum isn't necessarily being filled by um, playing a wiffle ball in the backyard. Uh, to, my, to my great uh, horror, Christopher, you know exactly where, where that vacuum is being filled. Um, they're instead holding up in the basement in front of the Xbox and an iPad's playing Minecraft. <laughs> and so I wanted to introduce uh, Simon to uh, the, the beauty of, of Sports Center, right? Christopher, this is part of the way that you and I kept up mm -hmm. um, with sports in the 90s, right? Was um, uh, a bowl of cereal and half an hour of Sports Center in the morning. And so I went, I, I went on the Apple TV and I pulled up the ESPN app and pulled up Sports Center yesterday. And it was awful. It was like this Zoom call of four reporters breaking mm. up, uh, talking about a game that they watched in 2004. Mm. Whatever. So, gentlemen, I have a proposal for us um, to, fill, to fill this gap. Um, there is a league that is opening up on May 16th. Do you know what it is? No. No clue. It is the Bundesliga, <laughs> the German Football League, the German Soccer League. So uh, I'm putting you guys on the spot. We're all going to choose teams to cheer for passionately right now. So I'm going to list the teams. Okay. Wait, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. I am not a front runner, but <laughs> I'm. I don't know much about German soccer, but I'm pretty sure that one team has won like 90% of the titles. Bayern Munich is that? Yeah, yeah. Right. So I, I say no choosing Bayern Munich. Okay. All right. So we're rooting against the evil empire. Okay. I, that's I that dad. That's how you taught us, right? Never, <laughs> never root for the Yankees. Exactly. Or the <laughs> okay, so here we go, guys. So there's uh, FC Bayern Munich, which is, that's the evil empire, right? There's Dort Dortmund. And uh, by the way, these these all have, have great, uh, better names, longer names that are just incomprehensible, like Borussia Dortmund um, is their name. They're in Dortmund. There's Schalke, which is in uh, North Rhine-Westphalia, um, in Gesellkirchen. By the way, uh, German-speaking listeners, you can uh, um, you you may definitely make fun of us on all social media platforms when we're done with this. There's there's Leipzig, 
um, Rasenballsport Leipzig, commonly known as RB Leipzig. Then this one I can't say. Um, Borussia München Gladbach. So it's just known as Gladbach, I guess. And uh, München, München being Munich related? I, Correct. I, yes. No, it, you, you would think, right? Um, but it says it's a North Rhine-Westphalia um, okay. club. Right. So there's Köln, Cologne. There's Werder Bremen, which is Bremen. Um, there's Hertha BSC, which where's that? That's uh, it's outside Berlin. Okay. There's uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, Bayer Leverkusen, right? So that would be the Mets to the uh, to Bayern Munich's Yankees. I, I think Bayer Leverkusen is is also Bavarian. Um, yes, it is. No, it's not. It's in North Rhine-Westphalia as well. Uh, there's Stuttgart, Wolfsburg. Berlin, Hoffenheim, Dusseldorf, Freiburg. We got a couple more here. Mainz, Hanover, Augsburg, Paderborn, Nuremberg, Braunschweig, which is uh, Braunschweig, like Braunschweigert, I guess. And uh, uh, Tennis, Borussia, Berlin. All right, gentlemen, what's your club? Well, I first of all have a question, uh, Kirk. Is is there one for the Romantische Strasse? <laughs> uh, wouldn't that be Augsburg? Like I'm trying to look at uh, Nuremberg. Uh, does um, I'm trying, okay. So what what river was that that we, when we took the Romantische Strasse? I that's that was like a that was just a, a cut up line, or Kirk. I will choose Dusseldorf because of Hogan's Heroes. It seemed like in <laughs> Hogan's Heroes that they were always bombing Dusseldorf. Okay, all right, Dad. I have I have I have Craig down for Dusseldorf. Let me write this down here, Christoph. I'll do Dortmund. <laughs> Just because it sounds comical in English? Or uh, well, there's a... Uh, I remember... Uh, is it a style of beer, a Dortmunder, or is it a particular brand of beer I've had, Dortmunder? Okay. Yeah, good. What, that's, a, that's a laudable reason to choose. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do Leipzig. I have a stinking feeling they're awful. But I would, <laughs> it's one of the I few would, in, in East, Eastern Germany. Right, right. I was there in uh, 2017, uh, and so uh, I, when when I'm watching them lose, I can, um, I can, I can remember fondly the uh, the former East German city. Do you know what East Germans call themselves? They sort of have a chip on their shoulder, and they call themselves Aussies, um, short for like uh, in Germany, uh, Ost is East, right? Mm. So like Germans, they call themselves Aussies, and yeah. So there's that, gentlemen. All right, we have. Uh, um, Dad is uh, is pulling for Dusseldorf, Christopher is Dortmund, and I'm Leipzig. All right. Sounds good. Go, go. <laughs> so we'll have to learn each other's chants. Well, our own yeah. chants. Yes. Cheers. So, um, Kim, my wife, commanded me to turn off. Command. She rarely does this. She commanded me to turn off a YouTube video last night. Uh, no, two nights ago. I discovered uh, football highlights in German. So Germany has this um, small following of American football fans, and uh, and so for the NFL playoffs, they'll have a German a G- like German uh, commentators commenting. And so I was watching some. Gra- uh, I watched uh, the Minneapolis Miracle <laughs> in German, uh, and she turned told me to turn it off. So, <laughs> how are you guys doing? We're doing well here. Uh, so. Up in Ely, Dad has been doing a lot of remote work, 
uh, he's been self-quarantining. They have not been having services. So I called dad and I said, dad, if you're not going to work, um, would you consider spending a week quarantining with us? We're not going anywhere. It'd be sure fun to see you. Uh, and uh, so he showed up here on Monday and he's leaving Saturday and we've had a, it's, it's just wonderful for the kids to be with their grandfather, to spend time together. Uh, we've played a lot of uh, board games. He purchased, most people know that you can buy sort of localized versions of Monopoly. And, and I think it has to do with the intellectual property of Monopoly of Parker brothers or whomever not holding the the copyright anymore like that's expired and so there's a company where uh we could do haber bro opoly if we wanted and what we would do is we would um pay a certain amount of money and they would uh produce the game board for us and we could have like the 39 articles and um you know (laughs) instead of luxury tax it could be you know uh, an indulgence um and so for for eliopoly well, well, it's Ely Businesses. Yeah, so they actually—it's actually, it's actually um, a game shop. Uh, the The company actually has it set up. They say, "Here's here's what we advise you," because it is publicity for each business. And so it's like, sell Boardwalk for this much and Park Place for this much, and and um, so forever these businesses have their name on this board game. And uh, so yeah, it's a one, it's a one for one mapping. So yeah. Baltic and Mediterranean and Oriental and St. James place, St. Charles place, Bentner, all of these, the utilities, the railroads are mapped one for one into your local community. Ely is on the, is on the cusp, the entryway to the Boundary Waters canoe area. So the four railroads are now outfitters. The, the, the community chest and chance are the two grocery stores in town. It's a it's a delightful one for one mapping. Jail is the landfill. Nice. The, I like that. Um, uh, Just free visiting. parking. Free parking. Yeah. Is is Legacy Toys, which is a toy store in town. So it's and a, and uh, instead of just visiting people in jail, you're dumpster diving. Yeah, you're dumpster dump. diving. <laughs> so it's it's just delightful. And then the one where the four spaces after go, I forget what that is in real life, Monopoly, but here there's a lot of deer that you hit with your car. And so you hit a deer and it's $200. So it's just simply delightful. And Jordan, Christopher and Meg's oldest daughter, their only daughter, rejoiced in Insula. It's her favorite restaurant. The first game we played, she got Insula. And then she got Chili Dogs, which was the dog sled uh, concession that we went with at this past Christmas. So it's just simply delightful. And we've been playing that. It, it, you know, for me, I, I live a semi-monastic existence live by myself in this large house in ely and now with social distancing i spend a lot of my day by myself and i came here and landed in in sioux falls and i thought how am i going to make it until saturday this is way too much commotion way too many screens after 12 hours i was just i'm going with the flow simply delighted enjoying every minute of it I'm glad, Dad. I'm so glad that you're able to be there in Sioux Falls. And he brought his road bike, and, and we went for a bike ride yesterday together. Uh, I, I said a few episodes ago that uh, I'm delighted about my new purchase of a road bike, and so that was wonderful to, to bike on the bike trail together. It's great. 
Yeah. No accidents, Kirk. No accidents. <laughs> you uh, you are much gentler with Jordan, evidently, than I am on a bike. So oh, she didn't come with us. This was a, an adults only. And one okay. one one cool thing, Dad Dad loves uh, quantitative analysis. He was into <laughs> Bill James before it was cool. He was into baseball analytics before it was cool. He has spreadsheets where he has My kept track runs. of every uh, every single run he did on his running shoes, how far. Uh, and so he's purchased a, a GPS watch where, uh, after we got home from biking, uh, he uploaded the data and we could, uh, we could tell a number of things that we could tell our pace, uh, for each mile of, of our ride. And, and, um, there was a 10 mile an hour wind yesterday. And so yes. we could see how we dipped when we went into the wind and, and, uh, we varied by about six miles an hour. Right. So fun stuff. Very cool. Gentlemen. Shall we move on to the gospel reading for Sunday? Let's. Christopher, do you have it up? Would you uh, would you do us the honors? I do have it up. Uh, this the gospel reading comes from John chapter fourteen, verses one through fourteen. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The word of the Lord. What a great reading. So, Dad, tell us, what's going on here? Well, I had 
this particular text, as well as many others throughout Scripture, are ones where I have sought to gain insights from both conservative and liberal interpretations. One of the things I may mention more in the theology section of this podcast is how my great joy is to seek to find connections between both ends of the theological spectrum, believing that that each that both conservatives, traditional ways of faith and more liberal ways of faith have a lens for seeing things that we can learn from. And I find myself in the middle on just about everything. So with this particular text, what often can happen is, and I'm generalizing here, of course, that progressives, liberal folks may say, well, you know, Jesus is just sort of talking about this is impossible. There's there's no place that we go. Jesus is not talking about uh, any particular location and and certainly folks would respond against uh, some liberal folks with the what seems to be an exclusive claim here by Jesus. Yet conservative folks would suggest, well, this is talking about heaven. This is talking about a room someplace that when I die has got my name above it. And then I get to go and take up residence there, continue my life just as I have here on earth, but only in an existence that uh, it goes beyond my physical life on this planet. So I was really intrigued when in the New Interpreter's Bible, the John portion of that commentary by Gail R. O'Day, professor at, I think it's either Emory University or Candler Seminary in the United States. I'm just going to read a few lines here. It is critical to the interpretation of Jesus' words here that the reference to, quote, my father's house not be taken as a synonym for heaven. Instead, this reference to the Father's house needs to be read first in the context of the mutual indwelling of God and Jesus, a form of, quote, residence, end quote, that has been repeatedly stressed from the opening verses of the gospel. Throughout the gospel, location has consistently been a symbol for relationship. I was very intrigued by that, that Jesus in the gospels over and over again talks about I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Jesus talks about how the, the, the interplay within the, what we call the Trinity, that, that there is this, that this is where the energy for, for his life is coming from. And certainly a lot of the work in the Trinity now, my understanding anyhow, the theological work has less to do with persons as it has to do with interplay and so on persons as far as locations and identities, but as far as the interplay, the interrelationship. So for me, to, to the sense that, and this would be following on uh, Jesus' words in John 17, uh, eternal life is this to, and this would be John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So for me, the, just the joy of this passage is that our home, with all the connotations of home, our home is, the, is in the platter, so to speak, of the Trinity. The, our home is within that love and the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son.
and then later on the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Dad. Christopher. Yeah, I always like to begin my analysis of Scripture on this show by zooming out and, and seeing the passage in, in the greater context. And the same the same goes for this passage. Uh, Jesus opens this passage saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, and it's significant to to zoom, zoom out to, to realize where and when this is being said. And the structure of right, John yeah. is, is really interesting in that, of course, John is the more theological gospel and and so the farewell discourse this is part of the farewell discourse that, that uh, much of the second, almost the entire second half of John takes place the last week of, of the life of Jesus, very different from the other gospels in, in that we have just a lot going on here. And this is taking place on the night of the last supper that he has washed their feet. He has given them a new commandment. Uh, he has uh, said that someone's going to betray me and he has uh, foretold the, the d- denial of uh, Peter's denial. And but but he but, but he begins so he's kind of in the middle of something here and and he and this uh, this this assurance that he gives us is not a superficial assurance because he is going to accomplish um, these things for us that um, it, it's it's one thing if, if I'm sure we've all received some really bad comfort from somebody who's just kind of like they're there. Uh, or if, if you've lost someone you love, they're, they've said something really kind of callous and hurtful, thinking it's helpful. And, and I'm sure they've said, you know, oh, well, I guess God's plan was to have – I guess God just needed this person more than you did, um, as if that's supposed to comfort us when we lose somebody. Uh, and But Jesus here, this, this is not a superficial uh, comforting. This is a comforting with the knowledge that um, his death <laughs> the next day – um, and his resurrection will, uh, his work on our behalf is going to make everything okay. Um, I also want to say our our Reformed friends have this wonderful doctrine uh, that I think we would affirm as well, but it's not codified anywhere in our theology. But they, they talk about something called the perspicuity of Scripture, uh, which uh, is, it's really funny word to choose because uh, nobody knows what it means. Not not nobody, but many people don't know what it means. And the word means clarity. So it's a funny, complicated word that simply means that scripture is is uh, simple enough for us to understand. And I have just a brief quote that that I found uh, from somebody. I don't even remember who wrote it. That it explains the doctrine pretty well. The doctrine does not rule out the need for interpretation, explanation, and exposition of the Bible by qualified leaders. The doctrine does mean that scripture is clear enough for the simplest person, deep enough for highly qualified readers, clear in its essential matters, obscure in some places to people because of their sinfulness, understandable through ordinary means, understandable by an unsaved person on an external level, understandable in its significance by a Christian through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and available to every believer whose faith must rest on the scriptures. And I raise this because this scripture is actually uh, pretty complicated. Uh, so, so we both hold that that in the perspicuity of scripture, in the clarity of scripture, uh, people um, on this side of Rome, uh, almost in in reaction to Rome, saying that that the, the scripture sort of needs to be mediated uh, through the church and through official channels. And in in on this side of Rome, uh, 
we believe that that believers can read the scripture and understand it. But this is a particularly difficult passage, and right in verse 1 is a good example of that. And so many pastors are required to learn the original languages. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek. And uh, we learn those languages so that we can better understand Scripture, that aren't as good as our translations are, there are sometimes that judgment calls are made. And the second half of verse 1 is a perfect example of this, where it is not clear whether or not these verbs, forms of belief, are indicative or imperative. And so an indicative verb would be a verb saying, this is so. Uh, Kirk is tall. <laughs> I was wondering where we were going with this. Uh, that would be indicative, saying, saying something is right. so. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's an indicative. An imperative uh, is something that we must do, a verb that, that indicates like— Go clean the dishes. Kirk, go clean the dishes, yes. Yeah. And, and so it's unclear whether uh, either of these beliefs that we see, or trust, depending on your version, uh, it's unclear whether these are indicatives or imperatives. So Jesus could be saying, um, you already believe in God. Uh, you must believe in me. It's unclear whether he's saying, you must believe in God. Uh, you must also believe in me. E either of those could be either. And uh, there are different interpretations that we could take based on the choice that we make in, in translating that. So depending on your version, um, uh, I and I probably should – let me uh, just really quickly pull it up now. Um, While you're doing that, Christopher, the, R, the New Revised Standard Version – has the imperative as a footnote and has okay. the indicative as the uh, the way it's translated. And I, I Googled it, hoping that Bible Hub would come up because Bible Hub uh, is a wonderful comparative website that shows you uh, many versions of, of a verse. So the New International Version, the NIV, says, you believe in God, believe also in me. So it takes the first as an indicative, the second as a, an imperative. Uh, and so oftentimes we need to use uh, the rest of uh, an author's works. Uh, we need to use the way that, that these words are used in other places in Scripture um, to get a better understanding of it. Uh, I don't have a particular opinion on this. Uh, it's clear what one of the things that Jesus is doing here and, and elsewhere in the book of John is, is showing the people who still don't understand, he's showing his disciples that he and the Father are one. That's one of the things that he's doing when he says, I am, this verb form of I am. He's uniting his identity with the God who revealed himself to Moses and the people of Israel in Egypt as I am, Yahweh. And so, uh, so he, he is, he's doing this, and uh, he, he's, it's interesting in the second half of verse 1 um, how they still don't get it, how Philip is like, all right, show us the Father. And, and, and Jesus is like, don't you get what I'm saying to you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so, so Jesus is, is – this is very Trinitarian stuff. And as Christians, these are kind of things we take for granted. Uh, it's important to understand that the disciples didn't quite understand at this point. And so to, to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the disciples and to think about him saying, I'm going to go away. And, and these people have thrown in totally with Jesus. I pointed out how in John 6, where, where Jesus does this incredible church shrinking movement, and he's like, Jesus says, do you want to leave as well? Look, everyone else left. 
this teaching was too hard for them. And they're like, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We're with you the whole way. Uh, they're, they're with him. And Jesus is like, I'm going to go away. And they're like, wait a second. What? What do you mean you're going to go away? And so he needs to assure them, it's don't let your hearts be troubled. It's a good thing that I'm going to go away because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And um, this, this could be referring to a number of things. This could be partly referring to the work that he's going to do on the cross and bursting out of the grave. This work on our behalf. Like that is in essence preparing a place for us. And they're like, well, well, we, we are devoted to you. We want to find you. How do we find you? If we don't know where you're going, how are we supposed to know how to get there? It's as if, uh, you know, we're in an Indiana Jones movie and, and in, in the, the tomb that he raids, he finds, a uh, something inscribed in the wall that says, you must find the next treasure at this place. And Indiana, Indiana Jones is like, I don't know where that place is, and I don't have a map to get there. And that's what the disciples are hearing, is that we don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to find our way there? And Jesus looks at him, he's, he, and he says, I am, uniting his identity with the Father, I am the way, uh, the road. The road is me. And so we, we see him say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And again, there's a linguistic thing going on here. Um, the way is is kind of the dominant uh, referent here uh, that he's saying, I'm the way. Um, uh, and, and then throughout, uh, in the beginning of John, John, you know, in the beginning was the word, this divine logos, this idea of human wisdom, uh, divine wisdom coming to live here on earth, the, the divine word that is the truth. It's this objective thing that comes to us. And Jesus is the, is our everything. That Jesus, uh, he he did the work on our behalf. That we we find our way to the Father through him. And this is conti- continued in this. Uh, they don't understand. Thomas is like, I don't understand. How do we find our way? Philip's like, all right, we didn't understand what that was. So just show us the Father, and that's good enough. And Jesus is like, duh, I am the Father. Uh. And uh, finally, in verses 12 through 14, we have this beautiful idea of, of this power. And it's interesting reading the scholars on, on this whole passage. That there's a divergence of opinion on, on all these things, uh, on what it means by these works. Some are like, no, it's not that you're going to do greater miracles than Jesus. Jesus did great miracles. But, I mean, th- there's no question that Jesus is giving this power from on high that if he goes to the Father, he will send the Spirit which will, uh, there'll be mighty works that, that uh, the, the growth of the church, these, these works that the disciples did, they added more to this, to the church um, than Jesus did in his lifetime. And, and so there's all these great things by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ uh, that, that have been done. So it's a wonderful passage. It's, uh, there's a lot said here, and I hope I left plenty for you to comment on, Kirk. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Christopher and Dad. Um... Really, really thoughtful comments. Um, so it's interesting. Um, we've been through the season of Easter. Uh, we've had resurrection appearances as our gospel readings on Sundays. And then last Sunday was Good Shepherd Sunday. And this is interesting. Now we backtrack kind of chronologically um, prior to, prior to uh, Good Friday. And um, we're here at... Um, um, the, the high Eucharistic prayer in John's gospel. So this would have been at the last supper. Um, and they're, they're kind of 
two things that seem to be going on here. Um, we have, first of all, uh, in, uh, in, in verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 14, in, uh, in the first couple of verses, we have um, kind of words of explanation and comfort to the disciples. And then that flowers into some, some thick Trinitarian theology, Christopher, which you kind of, kind of worked on. Um, so as, as Reformed Catholic Christians, uh, the Reformed part uh, is emphasized in the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture as Christopher laid out. So the plain meaning of Scripture is almost always um, the intended meaning of Scripture. The Holy Spirit um, doesn't obfuscate or mislead his flock. Um, uh, but also we read um, as, as Catholic Christians as well, we read the, the scriptures together, right? So we look, how, how have our, our, um, our English scholastics, how have our Reformed scholastics, how did the patristics um, read these? And, uh, and, and I have to say, daddy, dad, daddy, where did that come from? <laughs> Humbly dissenting, the, um, the church fathers univocally saw these first several verses as referring to paradise. Um, and that was just, I mean, w without exception. Um, Saint Augustine. Um, paradise, excuse me. Links, excuse me. Saint Augustine as a as a paradise as a Pennsylvania. <laughs> Don't give his address on the podcast. <laughs> Kirk just got doxed. I got doxed by my father. Well, this who knew that? Okay. So, so um, St. Augustine um, links this, I, I think, quite powerfully with Matthew 20, um, the laborers in the vineyard, um, some that show up in the morning, some at noon, some in the evening, but they all get their, they all get their penny, right? They all get their coin, their wages, um, which, which is, right, eternal life. And so St. Augustine, when he looks at this, for I go to prepare a place for you, um, it's words of assurance um, that after all the perils of temptations that the disciples will be going through, um, both in Holy Week and and then then after in, in throughout the Book of Acts, um, that they shall dwell with Christ in the presence of God, um, that that promise is laid out for them. So in in my Father's house there are many mansions. He's assuring them. Saint Augustine says that quote, none of them shall remain outside that house where everyone, according to his deserts, is to receive a mansion. All alike have that penny, which the householder orders to be given to all that have wrought in the vineyard, making no distinction therein between those who have labored less and those who have labored more. Um, Matthew 20, verse 9. By which penny, of course, is signified eternal life, whereto no one any longer lives to a different length than others, since in eternity life has no diversity in its measure. Um, now, St. Cyril of Alexandria, um, uh, he says um, that in his father's house are m many mansions. He teaches them thereby that heaven is wide enough for all and that the world he has created needs no enlargement at all to make it capable of containing those who love him. Now, um, reading other patristic commentaries, I came across a common thread which, which leaves me uneasy, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be open about my uneasiness with you. Maybe you two can help me think through this. Um, most patristics, uh, church fathers, seem to read that the many mansions bit was evidence that there may be degrees of honor in paradise. Um, and I asked myself, why does this make me uneasy? And I'm not completely sure why. 
Um, what is it in Peter's epistle that uh, we read that their labors shall follow them? Um, I, I think it's that I've imbibed a lot of Lutheran intuitions that justification is an on-off switch. They're the just and the unjust, the elect and the unelect, the sheep and the goats. So I guess I'm a bit of an eschatological Marxist. <laughs> in heaven, there will be no rank, I guess, is in my head, right? No property, but all will be held in common from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. I jest. But looking at some of these patristic commentaries just made me think that I need to revisit some of these intuitions I have. I don't have any conclusions about this, guys, just observations and, and, and questions. Um, so that's on those first couple of verses. Um, St. Thomas crops up again. Do you notice that in verse five? Thomas says to him, Lord, yep. we do not know where you are going. I love in John's gospel, right? So you have the, the, the inner circle, right? The inner three, um, Peter, James, and John. Um, and they are those who are, who are permitted to see his glory at the transfiguration. Um, but we also have then this other quirky guy, St. Thomas, right? Um, in chapter 11, uh, he says, uh, let us go that we might die with him. Um, in, in chapter 20, we have um, his bold declaration that he won't believe until um, he beholds his hands and his sides. So I just love that Thomas crops up again here with this goofy saying, hmm. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Such honesty, right? The others are probably sitting there quietly, silently wondering, what is he talking about? I mean, all of us as 21st century Christians, we know the whole story and the, the result of the passion and his crucifixion and resurrection. And yet we still read these chapters, John 14, 15, 16, 17, and it's still this um, thick, holy fog um, sometimes <laughs> um, at our weakest, right? And so Thomas is honest. Um, along with us readers, I feel. Um, also, uh, verse six, um, I feel is a stumbling block for the modern mind. It's very interesting. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, how many dozens of sermons have been likely preached, um, essentially saying it doesn't mean what it appears to mean. Mm. Which, um, I would say to the reader, anytime you hear a preacher um, say uh, the Bible doesn't mean what it says, um, or our Lord doesn't mean what it says. Just remember the serpent's question to Eve in the garden. Hmm. Did God really say? Um, and recognize that voice for what it is. Um, it, uh, the exclusive claims of Christianity seem to be an enormous, enormous stumbling block for the modern mind. It's um, very interesting. That verse even leaps out to me. Um, verse 7, and I guess this is kind of where, where I have my, 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 my final thought. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So there are, um, in, in some Christian pockets of the internet and social media and academia, um, some conversations around something called subordinationism or the eternal subordination of the son, um, that the son in some ways subordinated himself to the father and, uh, and I think uh, this passage in John really kind of puts that to bed. Um, Peter Lombard, Lombard, a 14th century uh, bishop in, of Paris, a great medieval theologian, um, did a lot of good work on the atonement and uh, the incarnation. And at one point, Peter Lombard addresses the question, was it necessary that the Son um, be incarnate and be the atoning uh, redeeming sacrifice? Could it have been the Holy Spirit? 
Mm. Or the father. And, and he says, it, in the end, he concludes, it was not necessary that it was the son because the son shares the same divine nature as the father or the spirit. So it is the, um, the atonement on the cross is efficacious because it is the full divinity of God that is present. And the full divinity of God would have been present had it have been uh, the Father or the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, people that recoil from um, the atonement um, or who see it as kind of a cruel father uh, and a submissive son, I think are internalizing some subordinationist intuitions that just aren't, I think, um, scriptural. If we look here, um, we see that um, Jesus is saying that he contains the full divinity, the full divine nature, um, uh, equal in, in power and majesty and same in essence as the Father. Right? What else can it mean to say from now on, you do know him and have seen him? Uh, and so that, that, was, uh, that was striking to me. Um, and, and this is, uh, this is, uh, revealed more fully in the epistles, of course. Um, St. Paul goes into this in greater detail, um, in Philippians, right? Um, the full, uh, um, the fullness of, of divinity was present, I think in Colossians as well, he says that. Um, but then in humility laid it down and that is kind of the essence of greatness. Um, and then uh, I'm glad, Christopher, you, you brought up verses 12, 13, 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whosoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Um, that is a mystery to me. <laughs> I, I don't know what any of that is saying. Um, but I have a question, Dad and Christopher. Um, is this verses 13 and 14, is this why um, we're, we're taught to pray in, in uh, Jesus' name? Um, the, the, the way that the Trinitarian nature, nature of prayer and intercessions Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified by the Son. Um, do you know, is that, is that why, par partially why we're, uh, we're asked to pray, we're taught to pray in Jesus' name? I believe so, yeah. That uh, we, we have elsewhere, First uh, John, uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Um, we have uh, this idea of, of an advocate, um, of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, advocating on our behalf, um, that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son. Uh, and, and it's kind of this relational idea. But, I mean, that's not to say we can't pray to the Son, that we can't pray to the Spirit. Um, right. We, uh, and because we, we have a personal relationship with each of them uh, and, and with, with, our, with them as one God. Um, the God is three and God is one and and uh, it is interesting. Uh, I've seen people pray in the name of the Trinity, um, but uh, I would say this passage, along with this idea elsewhere in Scripture of, of, of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, um, being our um, uh, intercessor, interceding on our behalf. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, what a rich, uh, what a rich passage. Let's, uh, let's move on to uh, our theology segment. Dad, 
you have theological thoughts for us this week. Um, you have stuff uh, stuff to get off your chest. You cut out for just a second, Kirk. Were you talking to talking to yeah, me? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, one of the things that I find to, uh, and Kirk, you and I have talked about this a fair amount. Christopher, I probably have, well, we have two, but maybe less, that for me, I am, I am drawn to people, to theologians, to ways of thought that cannot be put into a box. Actually, Christopher and I were talking about that just the other day. Uh, people that um, you can't say, with our propensity, well, so-and-so, that's a such-and-such, and so-and-so such, and so -and -so is a such-and-such, and, such, and to, put a, to put a brand on everybody. So there are different theologians that, that I'll mention in just a moment, but it kind of goes back to uh, one of the people that I'm very interested in is Thomas Merton, the Trappist uh, monk that lived um, during the uh, first half in, in into the second half of the uh, of the 20th century he had several dear friends and by the way merton spent half of his life almost to the month 26 years in the quote secular world and 26 years as as a monk before dying tragically in an accident over in southeast asia electrocuted by a fan that fell but in any case the he had a dear friend named Bob Lax, L-A-X, who was a, an odd fellow in a lot of ways. Uh, I have his a biography of his that, as is often the case, I've worked just partway through until I go on to something else. But early on, uh, there was something that jumped off the page as I was reading this. Talking about Bob Lax, one of his friends was talking about him that Bob Lax had a great love of the world and all things, all persons in it. And then here's three sentences that just make, mean a lot to me. Part of his particular existential search, especially when young, was for ways to love and reconcile everyone and everything. For him, this wasn't some sentimental wish, but rather the prime purpose of life. And it was inextricably bound up with writing. I love that. Yes. Bob Lax was an interesting. He actually lived out his last years on the island of Patmos, speaking of the, of, of <laughs> the uh, huh. evangelist John. St. John. Yes. yes. Very interesting fellow. In some ways, a very odd person, but, but very, very deep. So some of these authors that are very intriguing to me, and I'll just mention a few. But, then, um, before you say that, Dad. Um, isn't isn't he making actually touching upon a more cosmic ex eschatological point? Um, the point of all of this, of um, of the incarnation, of our Lord's life, his death, his resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the work of the church, the point of it all is that all things may be reconciled and returned into union, reunion with uh, the source of their being, right? Um, there's a cosmic reconciliation that our the Holy Spirit is working out right now as well. Um, so both on a on a on a small level, um, on a human level, and on a on a cosmic level, reconciliation is the goal of all things, right? Well, I think so. And there's of course that verse in Colossians uh, about reconciling all things uh, and 
That but would, I didn't mean to derail you. I'm sorry. No, well, no, I mean, that's a point well made. I think we see that in Colossians. I think we see that in Paul's writings in, in well, Corinthians. In, in Revelation. Pardon in me? Revelation. Well, yes. right. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yes. And <laughs> and I don't know here if the if the Orthodox doctrine of recapitulation would fit there as well. But so yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, N.T. Wright would be a person that I would see there. Um, often typecast as a uh, traditional interpreter of scripture and yet has a, in a very British way, a passion for social justice. Uh, Wendell Berry is more uh, of a novelist, but ha he brings a lot of different, he's an impossible to put into a box. Uh, Walter Brueggemann would be another person, Rowan Williams. Well, the person I wanna mention here is Frederick Beekner. Very interesting. Presbyterian pastor, but his vocation has been writing. Uh, he's now 93, still alive. He, his kind of a very important person in his call to ministry and going off to seminary was uh, uh, George Buttrick, who was a famous uh, pastor in New York City. And Beekner tells a story about that. But I wanted to say about Beekner <coughs> something that was just very interesting to me that how he is embraced in, say, 15, 20, 25 years ago, he was embraced by uh, people left of center theologically who would gobble up each new book that came off, as it came off the press. He was sort of a darling of, uh, of those sort of folks. Uh, new England, and Beekner lives in, in Vermont, taught at Exeter uh, for a while, uh, private school. So he was a darling of that set of folks, but also very interestingly, later in his life, he became embraced at Wheaton College. And he would travel to Wheaton College and the, the students there loved him. In fact, some of his papers, I did a little internet surfing and wasn't able, unable to tell if all or just a portion, but some of Beekner's papers are held at Wheaton College. Very intriguing to me how there are people who who speak in a voice that is heard by both uh, more traditional uh, believers and more progressive believers. That's very intriguing to me. It's also intriguing. There's a Franciscan priest now who is somewhat a, a darling of a progressive thinkers. His name is Richard Rohr, who interestingly holds to a, a literal view of the resurrection and also has, I don't know if it would be a literal view, but certainly an importance of the symbolic view of, the, of uh, the doctrine of hell. So that would just be my take, that the richness of Christian tradition, that we have these voices. I read everyone from uh, Cynthia Bourgeau to Jonathan Edwards and find value uh, in a lot of different places. So I'll just leave it at that. Oh, maybe one other thing to, to mention is, in this sense, uh, is that uh, this has led me to sort of a new hermeneutic of, of preaching. After 37 years of writing sermons, it's not that I'm getting biblically lax, but I've got so many years under my belt of preparing sermons. Recently, Christopher purchased the NIB commentary series. Hey, 
I made the mistake of of uh, not talking to him early enough when he purchased them to just say, Christopher, I'll give you the whole bunch. Because for me, I consult commentaries rather than at the beginning of the process, at the end of the process to double check on stuff. Not because I know it all, but because at this point in my life, what happens is the way I prepare sermons is I study the text for the week, just at more of this level we've been talking about. And then I just think about life and about the questions that are occupying me, which I assume are the questions that occupy most people. As I ponder those two, I'm going to call them vertices, scripture, the text, the pericope, and my own life, I find a third vertice of a triangle, unbidden, appearing. And that third vertice is either things I'm reading now or I've read across the past 40 years. There becomes an electricity inside that triangle. Scripture, my experience, and the things that I've read, where it's almost embarrassing the way I find sermons uh, delivered to me, uh, where I feel, uh, when I say delivered, I, I'm saying that they're just an, an inspiration, a muse of sorts. And that's maybe not related to what I said earlier about Beekner and others, but it is something that I just wanted to pass along. And I'll leave it there. Dad, thank you for your uh, theological reflections. Um, we're running long, so we'll wrap up our theology segment here. Can I, can I add just yeah. a little bit? You mentioned you go ahead and add. <laughs> how scandalous it is, the scandal of particularity, which uh, to the postmodern mind, this, idea, this sense that Christianity is an exclusive uh, thing, it makes exclusive claims. Uh, and you didn't mention postmodernity, but but essentially it's 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 a scandal to the postmodern mind. This idea of yeah. of exclusive truth, of objective things at the expense of other things. That there would be one, and 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 so for that reason, this idea of Christ being the only way to the Father is is scandalous to to many minds, and it, it seems very arrogant, uh, and and it. Maybe it would be if it weren't so inclusive. Uh, these are exclusive claims, are, but but they're also inclusive of anybody. Can yes. is, is is this is offered to everybody? That's right. To the worker that was there at dawn, or the worker that was there at six p.m. That these are the means that Christ's work on our behalf are the means that we find our way to the Father. That God is reconciling the world to Himself. And so I want to mention that. I also, uh, Kirk, you've read some poetry. Uh, D.A. Carson is known as a, is a wonderful New Testament scholar, uh, but he happened to write uh, a triplet of sonnets on this statement that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And I love I'm, me a good sonnet. I'm going to read all three. All right. <laughs> I am the way to God. I did not come to light a path. To blaze a trail that you may simply follow in my tracks, pursue. My shadow like a prize that's cheaply won. My life reveals the life of God, the sum of all he is and does. So how can you, the sons of night, look on me and construe my way as just the road for you to run? My path takes in Gethsemane, the cross. And my star and stark rejection draped in agony. 
My way to God embraces utmost loss. Your way to God is not my way, but me. Each other path is dismal, swamp, or fraud. I stand alone. I am the way to God. Second sonnet. Second sonnet. I am the truth of God. I do not claim. I merely speak the truth, as though I were a prophet but no more, a channel stirred by spirit power of purely human frame. Nor do I say that when I take his name upon my lips, my teaching cannot err, though that is true, a mere interpreter. I am not some prophet voice of special fame. In timeless reaches of eternity, the triune God decided that the word, the self-expression of the deity, would put on flesh and blood and thus be heard. The claim to speak the truth, good men applaud. I claim much more. I am the truth of God. Sonnet 3. Mm. I am the resurrection life, it's not. As though I merely bear life-giving drink, a magic elixir which men might think, is cheap because though lavish it's not bought, the price of life was fully paid, I fought. With death and black despair, for I'm the drink of life, the resurrection mourns the link. A morning, the resurrection morning is the link. Between my death and endless life long sought, I am the firstborn from the dead, and by my triumph I deal death to lusts and hates. My life I now extend to men and ply them with the draft that ever satiates. Religion's page with empty boasts is rife, but I'm the resurrection and the life. And those are good enough that those are worth sharing word for word, um, which, which we'll do in show notes, which are our show notes uh, part of the description of the show on iTunes. Is that where you're putting that stuff? Yes. Um, any, anywhere where you, uh, yes. Any platform where you see our, um, the description, if you scroll down, you'll see links to the gospel reading links to any articles um, that we have, uh, that we've cited. And uh, please let us know if I've forgotten anything. Um, in the show notes. Um, there is, Christopher, thank you for sharing that. We will definitely share those. Um, those are those are wonderful. Uh, I, I do have one uh, one final item um, that I had forgotten. I didn't forget, I forgot to properly wrap up uh, Peter Lombard's um, reflections on, uh, on why the son was the uh, person of the Trinity that was incarnate. Um, it wasn't random. <laughs> um, and it was, as we read in, uh, Genesis 1 and John 1, um, that the Son creates all things, the Word of the Word creates all things by speaking it into being. Um, it is fitting that the Word that spoke all things into being should be the one that undoes, uh, that knits back together that which was ripped apart in the garden. And so there's a symmetry um, to the Maker um, fixing uh, his creation that, that, had been, uh, that had been broken. So that was, that was why that was. All right, gentlemen, um, let's move on. Um, we're running low on time. Let's move on to our final segment. Oh, 
All right. So for our final culture thoughts, um, I was watching Tolkien the other night, a recent movie, um, uh, 2019, I think, came out last year, on, uh, on the life of J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings books. Um, perhaps you haven't read the books, but it's quite likely that you've seen the movies. Um, and at the end of the at the end of the movie, um, he's he's in the he's in the middle of writing The Hobbit, and he's walking in the woods with his family. And there's a scene where his children ask him what the book is going to be about. And he begins to give details about specific characters and and uh, plot points, and then he trails off, and he says, "Actually, fellowship, 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 really." And that struck me, um, really, really struck me hard because fellowship is the one thing that we have not had in this Corona tide. Mm. And I don't know if you guys have had any kind of properly socially distanced conversations recently with, with friends that you haven't been able to see for weeks and months. Um, but I did this past week. Um, someone brought us uh, a package, care package, uh, deep friends of ours, a family friends. They they have two sons that are in the same grades as our sons, play the same sports. And we stood in the driveway together, um, separated, um, but yet together, physically, incarnationally, in a real way. And it felt so fulfilling. And I realized what it felt like. It felt like, that. do you remember that feeling at the, the first day of school after summer vacation, seeing your friends and you had so much to say and you missed them so badly, and it felt so good um, that it was just hard to put into words. And of course, being a guy, you, you don't want to tell you know another guy <laughs> when you're 15 how much you missed him and how much you love him. So, um, but that's what it felt like. And um, why do we yearn for this, Dad? You had some thoughts. <laughs> he took off. We lost Dad. <laughs> that's great. Do you want to mark the time? I have not. You have not. Well, we we have lacked fellowship, so. Yeah. That sounds good, so have though. You felt the lack? Pardon? You felt the lack. I have, yeah, yeah, and and some of that is is lessened by the modern desire to be busy. So I haven't allowed myself to lament. Uh, as I ought, um, but uh, but yeah, I I have not had fellowship, and and there are certain virtual happy hours we've set up, uh, but we have tested the limits of social distancing in a few different areas of of just like can we have a fire pit outside and just enjoy each other's company, and we have done a little bit of that. Yeah, it'll be uh, so Dad, good. Dad is back. Yes. Hey, Dad. Yes. So I, uh, I, I just shared uh, kind of my meditation and experience recently on, on how much I yearned for fellowship and, and, and have, have been getting so little of it, literally one instance of it in the mm -hmm. last couple months. And, um, and you had some thoughts on, uh, on the power and importance of fellowship. Well, uh, and I don't know, uh, they would probably extend beyond what the time we have, and I've said too much already. But I, I think I think the main thing to say would be uh, that our people, the church that I serve, we're just hungry. We we were late to Zoom. When we did Zoom, people's relief of 
even virtually seeing each other was just palpable, almost to the point of tears. Mm. So I think we are missing it desperately. Uh, we're, we're trying to consider, uh, um, so how do we, you know, we just don't know about this disease, the, this virus. We don't know as far as quarantine. I think one of the things um, that um, the depth of fellowship in general is one of the deepest human hungers that we have. That seems right. And I think when you add um, one of the things with Christian faith across the centuries is the depth of fellowship in Christ is even deeper than the general um, the general human need for fellowship. The one part that's not being addressed here beyond family groups, beyond family groups, is uh, the need for human touch, physical touch. Yeah. That right now, so even though you can have a physical, so being in a virtual Zoom meeting, that's better than the phone. That's better than email. Yeah. Seeing each other face to face at a social distance, that's better than Zoom. It, there still isn't physical touch. Uh, I think, I don't know what else I would say, but that'll be something I think. Just how is that going to happen? I don't know if I have anything else to add. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's good. That's good. Um, gentlemen, any other uh Oh, Dad, you you had, you had shared one one final thought, which is worth sharing about this, um, that uh, you wonder if part of the attractiveness, power, and attractiveness of Christianity um, to people throughout the Roman Empire, regardless of ethnicity, whether you were a Roman senator or um, a slave from Tunisia, um, was uh, was um, the importance of fellowship in Christian churches. Um, Yes, I think, and uh, one reference I would make there is a, a wonderful book, a lovely book written by Thomas Cahill, Desire of the Everlasting Hills. It's part of his book, the, uh, the one that's most commonly known is How the Irish Saved Civilization, but that's a whole series. He's a generalist, so his footnotes aren't always the best, but he captures the sweep of things. Desire of the Everlasting Hills talks about just the, the, just the loveliness of the appeal to uh, to the Roman Empire, the highly efficient Roman Empire. The the uh, of course you probably you and Christopher have repeated you know the early saying about Christians. See how they love each other. The uh, how very very different. Uh, N.T. Wright in his book on Paul talks starts it by beginning how the letter to Philemon was just the opposite of a letter that one of the Plinies wrote. Mm. That the, just the ethos of early Christianity. And of course, Philemon, the slave that was released by Philemon, very well could have become an early bishop in the church. Mm. Uh, that that is fairly well attested. Epiphras, there was a bishop, I think maybe of Ephesus, that was known as Epiphras, uh, um, not Epiphras, um, Anesimus, Anesimus, Anesimus is known to have been an early bishop in the church. So just this mag magnetic, winsome, overpowering sense of the hospitality that Christians had for each other and for the stranger. So that this is a uh, this is kind of a, a drum that I beat. Uh, the double meaning of communion um, is often lost when we think of Holy Communion. We think of communing with God. Um, 
but the double meaning also is of communing with the saints across time and space. Um, and, uh, and that is a, a power and a reality of, of the church and of believers and of our faith that um, we are drawn together in fellowship. And um, I, I think you're right that for Christians as well, um, the, the lack of physical touch, we probably feel that keenly because it's kind of a, one of the marks of the church is that we come together physically. Um, and and I, I'm sure a lot of people feel that as well. Any thoughts before we close in prayer? Let's close in prayer. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. spirit. Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal glory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of our Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night, for the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Dad, thank you for being on the show with us today. Thank Kirk. you so much. We'll uh, talk next week. Next week.